Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Joe and Eben, for their support, and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Finnish conductor, who first came to prominence after winning the Yorma Panela Conductors' Competition in 2003. Since then, she's been the Chief Conductor of the Nordic Chamber Orchestra, and since 2020, she's been the Chief Conductor of the Iceland Symphony Orchestra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Eva Olikainen. Eva, it's lovely to meet you, to speak with you, and to see you. How are you? Lovely to meet you, Mike. It, it, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Um, a week at home, in between engagements, so... Yeah. Very, very lovely. It happens to be my son's birthday today, so... Oh, well, wish him, happy, wish him happy birthday from me and from the podcast listeners. Uh, and we, we were laughing um, before I pressed record because uh, you're in Odense in Denmark, which is a very, very pretty place, and you're in the prettiest bit, the old bit, right by the concert hall, which I conducted there once. And we were laughing because we're both sitting in our studies, which are painted almost identical colour of red. Um, so... <laughs> I can, and I can see scores behind you, much like there are scores behind me. Um, yeah. We need a happy place, don't we, as conductors, somewhere we can sit and study and feel right. Oh, that's so important uh, to have, you know, um, your own butt cave. I, I don't know, I call it a butt <laughs> cave. <laughs> yeah. my, my, mine's a man cave because I live with my wife and my two daughters. So, you know, I'm the only man in the house and it is my man cave. But yeah, it's a cave. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Red is such a vibrant color for me somehow. I, I love colors, yeah, which yeah. Uh, you wouldn't see from my clothing when I'm traveling around because I always wear black just because it's so much more practical. I think, but but I really, I'm a true color person and I'm yeah. very much obsessed with all different shades and how they work together. So yeah. <laughs> this is my hobby, I hope. Um, you did show me the color of your walls, but I didn't spot if there was a piano in your room. Yes, uh, and the reason for bringing up the piano is that I always do my Wikipedia and website searches to do my homework in my little notebook. And Wikipedia tells me that the first instrument that you started age three was the piano. So uh, did you come from a musical family? Your parents, were they musical? How did you end up sitting at the piano age three? Oh dear, yeah, this is a long thread. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, my bigger sister is very musical and uh, she's five years my senior and, and she was already uh, playing very well by the time I was born. And yeah. um, uh, my mother was interested at the time about uh, like piano pedagogy and she was studying it a little bit at the time and uh, our father he was like kind of like a very natural um, self-taught musician he picked up any instrument and uh, went to the sauna uh, cold sauna I should have <laughs> and stayed there for a few hours and and then he kind of knew how to play a set instrument so wow he, he was very curious about things, uh, but yeah, my my childhood <clears throat> was um, otherwise maybe not the brightest one. I, I come from a highly dis dysfunctional family, uh, so um, music was for me from a very early age. It was definitely the savior of my mm -hmm. life, and yeah. I put a lot 
of myself in it. And yes, yes the piano just happened to be my first instrument, which I then played until age 21, basically, when I graduated from the Sibelius Academy with a piano. And um, yeah. You also managed to fit in the violin and the French horn. Uh, to, to what degree? Uh, were you a good violinist or, or French hornist? <laughs> um, short answer is no. Uh, but but um, I did play the violin quite a bit uh, but during my studies and especially my conducting studies. Uh, we had this conducting class orchestra and I yeah. always played in the second violin section there and I also played often, very often in the Sibelius Academy Symphony Orchestra, the second violin. And uh, these were all wonderful experiences. I love to play the violin, but um, unfortunately, I should have been much uh, younger, I think, when I started the instrument, if I wanted to become really good at it. And the French horn is, well, I have no idea where, where why people are talking about this. I love the French horn. And yes, right. uh, when I was a student at the conducting class, um we had to have three different instruments oh okay at the time and i picked the french horn um i had like one year classes um of it officially but then i i had a shoulder surgery a little bit later and uh, you know being the type that i can't really sit still and not do anything um i figured that you know, I could lie on the couch down and uh, just rest uh, one shoulder and, and you know, keep playing the horn. And, and yeah. that was very amusing. I love the instrument. And my son plays now the horn. So sometimes we play together. Yeah. Uh, really oh. Lovely. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, I mean, you know, for conductors, I think, you know, knowledge of an orchestral instrument, you know, obviously you played the violin for long, well, long enough and well enough to play in the Sibelius Academy second violin section. I think it's very important. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that you, you can't be a great conductor by only being a pianist or only being a singer or whatever, but to have that knowledge, and it it's more about how it works from the inside, how the, you know, that you can hear the engine ticking along whilst you're in the middle of it, but also that social discourse of, of sitting next to somebody, sharing a music stand in a section, that sort of stuff will yeah, feeling stand, the energy you, yeah, stand the you in good stead when you, that you end up standing in front of the orchestra knowing how it works a little bit from the inside i mean you know i was a professional violinist for 22 years i knew know exactly how it works from the inside but yeah i think it really 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 helps you talked about doing things young i'm wondering whether you know I'm, i remember sakura oromo telling me that he did the first time he conducted publicly was a similar age to you but it, you know it says you started your conducting studies when you were 12 um, oh <laughs> uh, yeah oh so wikipedia it sounds like wikipedia people who've written your wikipedia page <laughs> have focused i have no on idea where these things come uh, from uh, yeah. well it is true i tried conducting when i was 12 yeah um that is because i was uh, studying already the piano at the cbs yeah. youth department and jorma panula our big conducting ah, legend yes. he um he may have been the professor at the time or maybe i'm mistaken um, but he wanted to have, uh, you know, this kind of a laboratory for us young, our kids, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he said that everyone who is studying at the youth department, it's a very small department, of course, uh, that everyone was welcome to try mm. uh, conducting. And we were a few, maybe we were five or six. I don't think we were more than that. But yeah, there we were. I was 12 and um, Haydn 102 was on the menu and yeah. they conducted the Sibelius Academy, the, the conducting class orchestra. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, that's kind of, well, it was public in the sense that uh, <laughs> the Finnish broadcasting company uh, was there with their TV cameras. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I felt myself that um, it didn't go so well. Uh -huh. So I put my uh, dreams aside for three years. And during these three years, it took me three years to realize that maybe you can't be perfect the first time. No. And maybe you should study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then after three years, when I was 15, I, I called Jorma Panula and asked if I could come to his youth class. And he said, yeah, come tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I was anyway fairly young, but yeah, sure. Yeah, he's, but he's I an... have seen the footage, oh, actually. Yeah. yeah, I've seen the footage. It's not too bad. <laughs> Coming, being a pianist and being used to be everything being precisely synchronized yes like, of course yeah exactly so that feeling was so terrifying that it wasn't precisely together you mm. know <laughs> yeah yeah and when you put that beat down virtually all orchestras there is a a, a delay Absolutely. Um, yeah. you know with youth orchestras it's often not quite so as as big a delay because they've been told to play on my beat by somebody and then you go through to you know where we we both are now when we go and guest conduct and you put that beat down on monday morning and you have no idea when it comes when the sound's going to happen and how it comes yeah. back so there is always a delay so i can imagine yeah if you've been a pianist all your life and that immediacy of just going bonk on a on a keyboard that when you do you do that and nothing happens for that split second it must yeah. be very frightening yeah, um, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yorma Panela is a name who has cropped up fairly regularly on the podcast. Uh, people who've been taught by him, many people, obviously many of the Finns I've interviewed, but also people like uh, Barbara Hannigan, um, Natalie Stutzman, myself for a brief, intense period. Many people have said... Uh, even people who've studied with him, you know, at the Sibelius Academy for, you know, two or three years have said that they don't really know how he teaches. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, I found that I've, I learned possibly more by watching the other people he was teaching than me personally. And, you know, you've got to be an absorber. How did you find his teaching style compared to the next name that crops up, who has also featured Leif Segerstam, another great Finnish conducting teacher. How did you find Jorma's style versus Leif's? Because I, what I can gather, they're quite different. Oh, absolutely, very different. Um, <clears throat> I think the abs abs uh, absolute best side of Jorma Panula is that he takes every individual where they are. Yes. He doesn't expect you to be, if, if you're like 15 or if you're 35, he doesn't expect these people to be at the same level. He has a very good eye for seeing where, uh, what, what does this person need to think about next? What is the yes. next level? And he doesn't pour like 20 things in your head. He says an ma absolute maximum of three things mm. per time. And then he, of course, expects you to have thought about those things and have made some progress. Uh, for the next time but um he yeah i think that's great and 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 he sees the individuals and he understands that uh he can't give a ready chewed formula for anyone yeah yeah, yeah. but the, what, what the conductor has to do is being true to themselves being individuals cherishing their individuality and um daring to be uh, be what you are 
basically. Mm. Mm. So I, I think this is a true genius behind Jorma. But that's a very instrumental way of thinking as well. You know, if you teach somebody to play the violin, which I did for, you know, 15 years or so, you don't overload them with technical advice in an hour's lesson. You give them, you focus on one thing or two things so that they go away and they can think about that. You know, you, you can't give them, you know, everything in one lesson. You know, you give them something, some basics, and then they come away and then they come back and then you you build and build and build. And also as a violin teacher, you know, it's very difficult to teach somebody who's six foot two uh, against somebody who's five foot zero. The hand size is different. The arm size is different. The body shape is different. And, and as far as conducting is concerned, it's exactly the same. You know, I'm a big guy and I do my things the way I do things and you do the way you, you do things. And so as a teacher, to not be too prescriptive, I think, must, you know, is very good. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, to shape the individual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I mean that's the thing. It, it's hard to say anything else about Jorma because he was he was really so um, individual yeah. as a teacher. I mean, I mean, you can't really put him into a few sentences mm. more than this. I, I mean, uh, but that seems to work, and yeah. it still seems to work because he still has has this academy for young conductors in Finland. And um, I was a couple of weeks ago teaching the Sibelius Academy conducting class. And, you know, there was a another 19 year old um, <laughs> Finnish conductor. And I was just staring at him thinking, wow, mm. you know, it's all yeah. there. Of course yeah. he needs to grow and mature and, and you know, but, but uh, it is fascinating. It really is. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before. The only thing I would say that you can spot about a panel of conductor is their legs. You know that they very rarely do you ever see any leg bend because he ha absolutely hates that, and he hates you walking around the podium or move. So you know if their legs are pretty well planted, um, you know, and he, I always think, I wonder whether you've been yormered. You know, he's either made you wear by uh, you know um, hooters underneath your shoes, or he's grabbed your legs in the middle of conducting. You know, I, you're smiling and laughing, so you agree with me. But totally. about, from the waist up. There are, if you list all of the, you know, the big names on the scene now who've studied with Yorma, they're not all the same in any regard. And no, they're very different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And this, this is the thing, maybe, um, what, I mean, as great as Leif Segerstam was um, as a teacher, he uh, had his own way of doing things, his own technique, and he tried very hard uh, to get all of us to do the same because it works for him mm. and obviously um, as you say we're, we come in very different sizes and shapes and yeah. um, it doesn't work for everyone mm. so I know that uh, you know me as a small and uh, uh, small person and, and someone who is very very tall we're, we're struggling with very different stuff and um, in that sense maybe you know, because we all tried very hard to imitate Leif, because he, of course, he has an incredible technique, very admirable, yes, yes. which works for him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've, I've seen some people get a little bit stuck in their mm. development because they were so hard trying to um, imitate Leif. Yeah. And, and again, let's go back to instrumental teaching. You know, I think at some point you you have to realize is that what you're given advice by your teacher, 
you have to try and apply that to your body. And sometimes that can work and sometimes that doesn't work. You know, going back to the height thing and the hand size thing, my teacher for four years in Birmingham was a, a wonderful violin teacher called Jackie Ross, um, who, you know, to use feet and inches, sorry, old school, but she was about five foot one and had tiny hands and I'm six foot with massive hands. And I realized about into about into my second year by trying to copy everything that she did, it wasn't going to work for me. I had to take the principles of what she was asking and then apply them to me. And I think that's the whole point is when you somebody like Leif, is he's, if he's trying to teach you his technique, what is it about his technique that you can apply to you rather than just copying it 100 percent? Because you exactly. know, yes. Leif, is, Leif is a massive person. He's very tall as well as you know, all of the other directions. Um, you know, he's a big, big, big guy. And, yes. But so, you know, but if you can take something that he does with his wrist or what he does with his fingers or reply to that to you, well, then that's great. But I can imagine people getting very stuck on trying to be a, a, a carbon copy of him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, he was a very inspiring teacher in many ways. I mean, he had excellent ears and, uh, you know, made us always feel like Ah, I should have heard that. And, and you know, it's great because <laughs> yeah. then you keep um, developing uh, your sensibilities, um, no sensitivities. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you, know, so, so you can actually hear um, very well. And, and he was a very hard teacher on us as well. Uh, I remember the first class uh, with him was with uh, Prokofiev Fifth Symphony. Yes, yes. And uh, and the first thing he did was he told us all off because he felt that our uh, we, we didn't do it in the right tempo. Uh, uh. And then he was like, "So what is one three two? And and uh, then we had to give uh, sing uh, the metronome markings. And you know, uh, that's also a very humbling experience in your uh, first uh. class. But like, oh right, yeah, of course you are a conductor. I mean, maybe first things first. <laughs> We get fixated, don't we, on metronome marks. You just made me smile um, because I've discovered uh, you might this you might find this amusing, and others probably think I'm downright weird. I've just discovered a wonderful way of remembering me metronome marks, um, and it's so it's songs from my childhood that I remember. So what's interesting is I recently did two pieces at Crotchet equals one three two, and I found a database which lists every song ever. Um, and their metronome marks. And so I can tell you that crotchet equals one, three, two is exactly this. Because that's the same tempo as Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind and Fire, which, yes. is, which is at 132. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so I've now got a whole list on my phone of, of metronome marks that I, you know, I, I occasionally need to look at and go, well, what's 70? Well, that's the opening of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Um, what's 80? It's Painted Black by, uh, the, by um, the Rolling Stones. Uh, and, uh, and oh, so, wow. Yeah. And it, it really helps if you suddenly, you know, you suddenly need these things. Um, yeah. yeah you, it was, you mentioned. 132 I thought right actually I'm going to mention the um, boogie wonderland but yeah, yeah. that's great but, I, I do have some yeah. too but yeah. it's like uh the last movement of the Sibelius violin concerto is 100 yes. you just can't do it in any other tempo no 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 <laughs> yeah yeah well 100 100 is dancing queen by ABBA just so you know oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that <laughs> 
<laughs> I told you it's brilliant. I mean, the point is, you know, I've men been mentioning it to, to a few um, students of mine, and of course, they don't they don't have Dancing Queen etched in their brain like I do because I, oh, know, I do, yeah, yeah, you know, of course you do. But, so I said, well, you know, you need to go and find your own songs. It could be by, yeah, exactly. know, by yeah. whoever, you know, find your own yeah. songs. But but yeah, it's it, it, it's it's so far proof foolproof. Um, I'm going to jump over one major thing that happened to you in 2003 and go to 2006 whilst we're in the world of teaching uh, when you went to Tanglewood for the summer. And I wonder who was teaching at Tanglewood and how did you take the information that they gave you and add it onto your 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 yourness and your Sega stamness? How did you add on and whose who's stuff did you have to add on? I, I think our main teacher was basically Stefan Asbury or okay. at least he was like leading the program. I think, mm -hmm. I believe he still is. Um, James Levine was teaching us because he was the chief conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra at the time. Yes. Uh, we also had uh, Bernard Heitink and wow. Herbert Blumstedt. Wow, that's a list. Yeah. So that, that, that was very, very beautiful. Um, it was two months of very heavy work, of course. Um, yeah. We did have some discussions with the teachers, but in a way, I don't remember really I think they were very subtle, you know, mm. they were following our rehearsals and, and, but they didn't interfere mm. as far as I remember. Um, I remember James Levine watching a rehearsal of mine uh, with Elliot Carter's opera, What Next? Okay. And all of a sudden, I didn't know it was him, but, but all of a sudden I could hear people laughing behind. And what I did was... <laughs> because yeah. it's really hard yeah. it's yeah. very very hard to focus and uh, and uh yes all, all those uh tempo modulations it's full of them it's a very very tricky piece for about 45 minutes long and um everyone found this absolutely hilarious no one had ever said Shh, to james levine <laughs> <laughs> before um and uh, i think he was uh, more amused than anyone else by that no he was he was apparently laughing because he thought that you know it's it's so insane what the young people can do yeah. you know yeah. uh, so it, it was a good laughter this is what they told me afterwards but but you know it's so irritating when you try to really really focus and um yeah and then there's not silence in the hall <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, what I really learned maybe during that summer most was uh, from the, you know, you know, the student orchestra, Tanglewood Music Center Orchestra, the, the young people, absolutely fantastic, uh, gorgeous musicians, the energy, you know, and, and they all had their uh, coachings by the Boston Symphony Orchestra members, so they were very, very you know, well played together. And um, yeah, that was amazing. And I feel that for a long while, uh, you know, I didn't get to conduct any as good orchestra as that. The, mm. the, young, the, the, you know, best young people from around the world gathering together to play in Tanglewood. It's so, an, it's it an energy, isn't it? It's an energy that you you get more often with a group like that I, i'm in the middle this week of conducting i'm jumping in actually i was due to do the rehearsals anyway and then pass it over to marta gardolinska but marta now cannot do the concert so i'm going to do the concert with the cbso's own youth orchestra which goes up to the age of 21 so you have kids in there from 14 all the way up to 21 
when it's right, there is an energy there that is beyond anything you, you know, you rarely, rarely encounter when you conduct a, a professional orchestra because, you know, they're, they're because of the different ages, different ways of approaching it. But when it's right, my God, is it exciting. Yeah. Uh, we're doing Lutoswaski's Concerto for Orchestra this week, and oh, yes. you know, we've only had two rehearsals on it. But when it's been good, by God, has it been good? And I know I've got yeah, the rest of the exactly. week to, to, you know, to chip yeah, away. But there is it, also but... a form of joy and surprise yeah. When, yeah. When, when things work, you know. Mm. Uh, professional orchestras expect things to work. Of so, course. So it's where, yeah. where you set your expectations, I think. Mm. Uh, and, and the young people, they are so surprised, genuinely surprised yeah. when things work really well. And then they are so proud of themselves, which is yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've not said it yet this week, but I will do at some point, and I, because I truly believe this. I, could, I, I will say to them at some point, look, you can play as well as the Berlin Philharmonic can. The question is for how long? It could be one chord, it could be one measure, it could be one bar, it could be one minute. But then somebody does something stupid and it brings it back down to youth orchestra again. The point is, you know, you can play like the Berlin Philharmonic and it will happen in the concert. Expect it to happen somewhere. But the question is, how long can you keep that ball in the air? How long can you keep it going before somebody does something, you know, really stupid? Um, yeah. But it's true. It's absolutely true. They can play with that amazing power and beauty and skill and, and love and it can take off and fly. It just something will drag it back down again. That that is, yeah. it's just you just have to accept that, but try and avoid being the person who drags it back down again. <laughs> um, yeah, I did say I jumped over something rather important, which was in two thousand and three. You won. You were the winner of the Yorma Panela Conductors Competition. How did that affect you and your career at that time? Uh, I mean, you were quite young. I'm trying to remember when you were born. Uh, yeah, you were twenty-one, something like that. Um, so, how did that affect? Did it give you a good a good leg up the ladder? Um, what were the What was the prize? Was it just cash, or did you get um, engagements within Finland and further? Yeah, that, that was um, that was great. <laughs> I um, yeah, I was in my second year in the conducting class, and uh, somehow I remember when I got accepted to the competition. I remember that the atmosphere was a little bit like, you know, no one really thought I would, you know, I, uh, or maybe the least myself, I thought that I, I would even be in the finals. Yeah. But somehow I have always had this, you know, um, <laughs> jumping a little bit further back in my history. When, uh, when I first started dreaming about becoming a conductor, I was very young. Mm. And I did mention it in my family. And then my bigger sister, who, who is uh, a great person, but obviously also a child herself back then, uh, said that, no, you can't become a conductor because you're a girl. Uh, you know, and, and yeah. then I figured out that, okay, maybe I should shut up, but let's see. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and maybe that was a little bit the same atmosphere with, with the competition. I thought that maybe this is my moment now to actually up my game. A little yeah. bit and uh, I did work very hard on the entire repertoire I knew everything as well as I possibly could mm. at that moment in time and um, yeah um, the prize was a bunch of cash I paid my student loan instantly and um, yeah of course it gave a lot of visibility yes I was invited instantly to a conducting academy in London um, where we worked with the Philharmonia Orchestra and LPO. Yeah. And 
uh, their respective chief conductors at the time, Christoph von Dohnani and Kurt Mazur. Mm. So that was beautiful. And I believe through that connection, then um, I also uh, got my first manager. Yeah. Uh, I was at Harrison Parrot uh, at the very beginning of my career. So yes, it was very, very revolutionary for me, of course. Um, and uh, yeah. I think the management thing is almost the most important thing for somebody of your age at that time to get management uh, and, and and as you just said, that will give you visibility. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and that and that's so important. And to to be then be put in situations you would not have been put in if you had not have won. You know, that's the point, isn't it? To be invited to go to the Philharmonia and the LPO thing, and then you know you will be then be, be invited to do guest engagements um, and to have management there, making sure that you know are they the right ones for you at this point so that's so important because you know when you're 21 if you're not managed or nobody picks you up from winning a competition you're likely to just say yes to everything and that's not always the best course of action yeah well i did work a lot anyway yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a little bit too much as well but um i i feel that you know when i finally myself started to see that maybe i shouldn't be doing everything um, but instead starting to curate a little bit, doing the things that feel right for me and, and maybe not being, you know, running from one orchestra to the other. Yeah. Um, I didn't necessarily feel that I was listened to so much um, at a very young age. And the pressure was very high on, you know, that I should just be very thankful and, and do what I'm mm. <laughs> told to do yes yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah and, and i guess this was also the reason why i then um finished my contract with with uh harrison barrett and uh you know worked for a while without yeah. management yeah i bet that was hard not just finishing with harrison Parrot, but working on your own um because it, I mean, it's, it's not a subject that's come up very often uh, with people who've worked on their own, but you know what your agent does for you, and this, these are the things. Though I, I, it makes my skin crawl that I would have to do is let's say you, let's say you go to you know the the X Y Z Symphony Orchestra wherever that might be. You do a week's rehearsals and a concert, and then you leave. At some point, your manager will ring up the X Y Z Symphony Orchestra and say, "Hi, how did Ava get on, or how did Mike get on?" Uh, and then they get told, you know, a precy of what's come back from the orchestra or how the concert, they thought the concert went or whatever else. The thought of me doing that about myself would just make my skin crawl. And also, you know, bargaining over, you know, your fee before you even get to the concert in the first place. So did you find that hard? Um, hard well, obviously, I, I would imagine you did. You know, how was that time? Oh, actually, I have to say that I, I very much enjoyed the freedom of not having to justify any decisions to anyone. Really. Yes, of course. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the flip side. Yeah, the, yeah. the other thing is that I found almost that, um, well, I'm basically working without management right now as well. Okay. Uh, the se second time in my life. And, and um, uh, negotiating fees is, is uh, I believe it's easier for an artist to say that this is my fee. And then uh, the orchestra either accepts it or says, oh, we are very sorry, we can't really do this. We can't really match this. Um, 
then I have a feeling with management, there is a lot of, you know, businessman against businessman and, and counting pennies and, mm. and it, it can end up looking weird, uh, mm. the end result. And um, yeah, so, so no, I, I think that has been fine. I have never called an orbish and asked, how did I do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. um, I think um, the feeling is quite obvious if there is going to be a continuation or not. That's very true. That is very yeah. true, yeah. And then, uh, well, I mean, I'm in the very fortunate position that I don't have to contact orchestras. Mm. They do contact me. And, yeah. and I get so many inquiries that, that um, unfortunately, I can, I have to say probably no to nine out of ten um, inquiries. Mm. I, I mean, it, it would be good to get the feedback, though. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, there is the danger that I just keep doing my mistakes <laughs> year after year. <laughs> <laughs> it would be good to hear, oh, she shouldn't be doing this or that. <laughs> yeah, but it, the good thing is that the phone is still ringing and you are turning down engagement. So you're not repeating mistakes and you're not doing uh, crazy things, you know, which is a good thing. Um, well, that's the weird thing about conducting, though, isn't it? Because you really don't know. No, you don't know. No, no. No, mm. because orchestras some orchestras all sit there smiling at you and then you leave the route you know you leave the place and then your manager says well i'm sorry they didn't like you you think well i thought they looked <laughs> uh, and i've been to other places where they all sit there sternly sternly facing you and then they you're immediately re-invited and you think well, exactly i thought they hated me you know it's just it's yeah it's very it is very odd yeah it yeah. is very odd Guesting is where you first form bonds. And as you've just said, you get that feeling often, despite what I've just said, when you know you've 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 done well and you've gone down well. You first guested in Iceland with the Iceland Symphony Orchestra in 2007 um, and then became chief in... I think even know. before, actually. I think it was okay. in 2005. Yeah, yeah wow. I did a concert with them in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, you know, that's you've you've been going there on and off for all 15 years before becoming their chief conductor in 2020. Um, it, spending the time forming a bond is is I find rather important. But I wonder whether you know you became chief conductor of the Nordic Chamber Orchestra in 2018. Was that another bond forming? You know, like we you know we build friendships, or was that a love at first sight? How how did that one come about? Yeah, um, there are two very different stories. I mean, I have to say yeah. that I have very, very clear memories from going to Iceland the very first time. Yeah, uh, I yeah. did a school concert with them in 2005, I believe. And uh, I even remember some of the program. We, we played uh, third and fourth movements from Beethoven 7, wow. which was like really somehow there was such an incredible energy on stage and everyone was all smiles and, you know, yeah. we had a great time um, together. So that, that was definitely love at first sight. Um, then I have to say that I don't entirely remember the first time going to the Nordic Chamber Orchestra. I've been there, of course, not so many times because I yes. was conducted there three years. Yeah. Um, and before that, I had also been guesting. Um, that was more something that I think... Uh, but we bonded over a longer period of time. We kind of grew into that relationship. Mm. Um, 
which is good. I mean, I mean, uh, both ways work. I yes, think. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've mentioned guesting. Uh, I'm going to quickly jump to uh, the first time I saw you conduct, actually, which was on the TV this summer uh, with the, when you conducted the BBC Philharmonic at the Proms. How was that, your first experience of a BBC Prom concert uh, with the BBC Philharmonic, who as orchestra I know very well and uh, have worked with many times and really enjoy working with. How, how was your Proms experience? Now, especially since there were two seasons when there were hardly anybody in the audience to now have audiences back again. How was it? Well, I'd, I mean, um, I have to say that I was a little bit nervous before the concert because yes, I yes. don't recall ever performing for such a huge audience indoors. Yes. And it was it was absolutely packed um, that evening. And I mean, I didn't know how, how I would react when, mm. when I come on stage, you know, um, would I freak out? Yeah, <laughs> or something? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I really felt that, you, you know, um, we are balancing right now. And but when I entered the stage, I was like, yes, this is why we do it. The, the energy from the audience was so beautiful. Um, you know, just the applause is so huge when yes. there are so many people in one hall. <laughs> um, that was so much fun. Um, then, of course, I mean, um, we performed with BBC Philharmonic, who was a fantastic orchestra. We rehearse in Manchester and then we come to London and we have one short rehearsal in Royal Albert Hall, which is very, very different acoustically. Mm. Um, all of this, you know, it wasn't entirely easy, mm. I felt. Mm. But um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, uh, people seem to like the concert. And I, I mean, I just feel maybe my own experience wasn't the easiest. Uh, you know, the, the spirit is so fantastic in the hall. Yeah. The, the, it was definitely worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, you know, when I remember playing for the CBS, I must have played God knows how many proms. We do, we do, we, under Simon Rettle, we used to do two every year, and then under Zachary, one, and then Andrus, one. So, you know, I, I must have done probably getting on for 30 proms as a player. And you feel the warmth is different in there from the audience. You feel the energy is different from the audience. Yeah. And many of these people go night after night after night. And it's a, it's their big thing every year to go to as many proms as possible. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose, the, you know, in that regard, that it's like a big cuddle for you, a big hug, and it puts you in the right place. Mm. The only thing that changes that, and I felt it as a player too. I mean, one of the last concerts I played there in the proms I remember there being TV cameras and nowadays there are these ones that sit on tripods and sort of remotely swivel around and looking at you. They're the things that can take you out of where you want to be in your brain and where you want to be musically and sort of, you know, you're, you're conducting and looking at somebody and getting involved in the music and then you see a camera go around yeah. looking at you. Yeah, and That must be something, because I've not experienced that, that must be something that can take you out of where you, the, your comfort zone, um, but, but you have to try and block them out, I would imagine. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're obviously trying to be so discreet as possible. Yes, but, yes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. For me, it was more the acoustic experience that, that the yes. whole was so different. Mm. Uh, I don't know how much time that would require for me to get used to uh, mm. the acoustic circumstances in that hall. And also um, for the musicians, how well they hear each other in mm. the hall, which I, mm. I believe they heard each other less 
yeah. uh, in Royal Albert Hall than yeah. where we, we rehearsed. But yeah. Um, I suppose what we uh, have to do in that circumstance is think, with an orchestra like the BBC Philharmonic, they will have done two proms a year at least. In, oh, more. In, yeah, more, yeah, yeah. In the in the Royal Albert Hall for the length of their career that they've been in the BBC Philharmonic, and some of them may have come from the BBC Symphony Orchestra who do you know ten a year or whatever. So, but every time they go there, they're having to spend the first half an hour to forty five minutes remembering what it was like playing in the Royal Albert Hall. But they'll get there yeah. quickly because of their experiences. Yeah. You know, for us, we have to trust that they'll get there. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. not focus on things that you know. Just leave them for forty minutes. They'll remember that they can't remember. They can't listen from the back of the first to the double basses as well as they can in their studio in Salford. You know, they will. They'll work that out. But, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's having the discipline to remember that. I suppose, isn't it? That's the that's the yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And you know, all me all orchestral musicians. It the difficult one is when you everybody in the room has gone into a concert hall for the first time and nobody has an idea what's going on yeah uh, that must be a nightmare <laughs> yeah well that's what that's when conductors should be using their assistants and saying well you, you stand and conduct i'll go and listen and then they can come back and i've done that for andrews <laughs> and for Zachary, and you know that's that's uh an important role um before we go to the 11th question there is one more question and you have mentioned it earlier about teaching you go and guest teach at the sibelius academy I also read, let's hope Wikipedia is correct here, that since starting in Reykjavik in Iceland, you've set up a conducting academy there. And I know that you've done masterclasses in, uh, when you've travelled abroad. How do you find teaching? What approach do you have? And is it based on anybody from your past? Um, what ethos? Are you very much into your stick technique or are you very much into the music and the score study? How do you go, how do you go about teaching? I think uh, initially, like the first time when I uh, was asked to come and teach at the Sibelius Academy, which is now almost 10 years ago, um, I am pretty sure that I was focusing on all the stuff that I wish someone had taught me. It's like they say, do as I say and not as I do. You know, that, that, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I think also... Um, um, well, having gone through two pregnancies and two caesarean sections, mm. um, I have had a fair chunk of physical problems in my body at, mm. uh, at a certain stage. Uh, well, the pregnancies were fine. Actually, I loved conducting with a big belly. <laughs> that, yeah. was, that was great. <laughs> uh, the C-section, not so much. No, of no. course. Um, and um, that just made me realize uh, which parts were never spoken about in our mm. profession. And this is about having a good support in your core muscles. Mm. And um, I believe firmly in that if you have a very good support from the center of your body, you can do almost anything with your hands and you, you'll still end up being quite clear. Mm. And um, yeah, th this is maybe my biggest philosophy. And this is what I always talk about with, um, uh, with the conducting students standing is of course also linked to this but um apart from being told that you shouldn't be jumping around no one actually told me what i should think about while standing so the philosophy of standing mm. is quite important mm. I feel, for conductors mm. um and um there are some basic rules that i believe work for everyone but as as we already spoke before everyone has to figure out yeah. their own 
uh, Oculus heels and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and such. Yeah, um, and also the philosophy of conducting. What do we actually need to do? Yeah, there. You know, young conductors tend to be very much all over the place. There is like too much information in their heads, and and this sometimes makes their conducting look a little bit messy. You know, mm. they're all mm. over the place. Uh, what do we need to focus on? And I think in the end, I mean, it can be cooked down to very, very um, concentrated stuff, which is the eyes. Who do you mm. look at? And then mm. with the hands, we, we have uh, the sound and shape. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, that's exactly it. And and I, I was teaching um, two postgraduate students at the Royal Birmingham Conservatory last week. I gave them some podium time. Um, in front of uh, the symphony orchestra, which I'm rehearsing at the moment, doing some Bernstein. And I said to them, you know, I'm sure you've got ideas about how you would like to conduct, what gestures you'd like to give. I said, but all of this is under the umbrella of your ears are listening. And when whenever there's anything that the ensemble needs to be fixed, you have to fix it immediately. You have to put the fire out, as I call it, because I mean, if you don't put the fire out, fire spreads. And that yeah. bad ensemble will spread across the orchestra. So I said, you know, whilst you're doing the things that we talk about, you know, the, your gesture and your technique, always be listening, you know. And then, of course, I mean, this I, is the first thing. Of yeah, course. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but but uh, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not slagging off our our colleagues, but there are some conductors who don't put the fires out because they're busy doing the gestures that they've practiced and they want to do at the at this place. Which you know that that's the orchestra. There are times when the orchestra needs us. And there are lots of times when they don't. And it's trying to figure that out as well, isn't it? Um, when, you know, you, you can just let the orchestra play and actually getting involved there is only going to make things worse. Just let them be. And then you need to get involved when you need to get involved. Absolutely. Although then, I mean, because conducting is so terribly, uh, you know, um, there are so many sides to it yes. somehow. And I've also heard very distinguished colleagues talking about uh, you know, just letting the orchestra fix their own pr problems by themselves and just giving them time. But I'm sure that this depends very much on, on what, it, what is the overall rehearsing time <laughs> available. Yes, yes. This varies yeah. also yeah. very much yeah. depending on where you are. Absolutely. And also it depends on the problem. I yes. think oh, yeah, absolutely. I think yes. there are some problems that can only be fixed by you giving a specific beat at a, at a specific time to help the orchestra mm -hmm. play which is why conducting was invented in the first place, because orchestras had got too big to fix their mm. own problems. They needed yes. something to stand there to help them do that. Um, you know, whether it was early, you know, con conductor composers like Strauss, Mahler, whoever, uh, and then, you know, the, the professionals from Nickish onwards. But yeah, I, I, there are times I think, yeah, I'm going to let that go next time through. I'll listen and see whether it fixes itself. And often the second time it does. But, well, some, yeah, but, occasionally. Yeah, yeah okay. Yes, yes. But there are other times when, you know, it's never going to fix itself and you have to get your hands dirty and help them, help them yeah. achieve what they want to achieve. I yeah. fervently believe there isn't an orchestra on the planet that doesn't want to play together. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there are times you, that the only way that that can happen is for you to help them. And yeah. they're, they're definitely the case. <laughs> yeah. The 11th question, which you don't know is coming or didn't know was coming, is actually... It can be talked about as as, as far as teaching because it, it, the question that every conductor has answered is how do you go about learning a score? I know you know you you say you play the piano, 
Uh, do you ever sit at the piano? Do you start with an overall view and zoom in, or do you start a bar one and go to the end? And the other thing is, and maybe as a panelist student, you're not a red, blue and black writer and scribbler of things, because I know he's he's not a fan of that. He saw my scores and said, oh, what is all this colouring? Um, do you, how much do you write in your scores? Do you, are you a scribbler in? Do you use colours? Or do you like to keep things very clean? Um, I do scribble. Um, I do, yeah. yeah. I try to keep it only pencil coloured, but yes. of course there are some pieces that are so hard uh, and or fast or something that, uh, or very small or something. I mean, sometimes mm. I just need to highlight them in different colours. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to keep things pencil coloured. I quite enjoyed, um, I did Beethoven 9 a few times before and I did it from the Breitkopf uh, new edition earlier. Okay. And, and that was, you know, it's my preferred edition and I, I love working from those. And this autumn now I did it twice. I did it with the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic and now with BBC Philharmonic. And both orchestras said that we are doing it from Behrenreiter. And yes. I said, oh, fine. <laughs> I guess uh, I'll have to, you know, I only had the study score of Berenreiter with me. So I bought the big one and uh, I very much enjoyed having the blank pages of yes. a piece that I know very well. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I try to be very, very scarce in my markings mm. and only do the things that I really need to have there. But um, yeah, if, if I get a completely new score, I definitely need to have a big overview of it. I mean, just, mm. you know, basically reading it through in, in tempo, uh, yes. kind of, um, and getting the sense of uh, the dramaturgy of the piece and also, oh, in the middle, like 20 really hard pages. These yeah. will need some time or, or you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sure. And then of course, I mean, once you start, studying I, I do I guess I can't really imagine that you would do it in many different ways but but there is the horizontal and the ver vertical uh look at the you know uh harmonies versus uh phrasings kind yeah. of how, how do these things work together yeah yeah and um yeah the interpretation kind of sneaks in mm. somewhere um I can't really put my finger on it where, where does this begin and it never ends, really, does it? Because no. every orchestra is different. And, and even though I, might, I may have had a funny idea in my head, uh, which I wanted to do, but, but maybe the musicians did it much better uh, their own way. Yeah, so yeah. then I like to leave that space uh, for the musicians. Of course, if, if, if you kind of get a very blank um, read through from the orchestra, you know, where, where only right notes are being played, right dynamics, but not really interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Then very good to have uh, your own own ideas at hand. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think for me, maybe one of the most important things is is the um, dramaturgical structure. How to build up that? Uh, also, uh, the tempo structure, mm. which I, I feel that surprisingly many colleagues seem to kind of not they're not so interested in it. Mm, mm. I mean, many are, of course, but but then you hear also performances where um, I'm sure that tempo structure has not been really considered. Mm. And uh, this is for me the most important thing by far. 
Especially with, with, with a new piece, like you've just said, I've I've done it very recently. I'm doing a, a piano concerto premiere um, at the start of November. Brand new piece. You you know you sing your way through it, and you get a, a a chance of feeling the structure and feeling where the high points and the low part points are, and how the music ebbs and flows and goes to these places. And and I think that's a really important, whether especially with a world premiere or a piece that you don't know or. And if you're somebody who doesn't listen to recordings, I do listen to recordings, but I know some conductors who don't, who they want to get it all in their head uh, in their own way. It's that way of feeling the structure. If you just work through it in tempo and sing through it in tempo and you, you, you'll you find where the high points are and you'll find where you need to think about the tempo relationships very clearly, because if you mm-hmm. don't, it's going to fall flat. You know, it's not yeah. going to work. Um, yeah, slightly okay. different with the piano concerto because I've got you know I'll, I'll be the pianist has got an awful lot more control over the pian- the, yeah, the tempos exactly. than I do, yeah. but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, it, it's a it's a you'd be surprised how many different processes I've heard over 120 or so uh, episodes, Ava. You really would. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's so interesting yeah. because yeah. I I can only see my way of working. You, yes. you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's the only possible way for me really. but that's the I mean, important thing is that everybody has got their own way and it works for them yeah. that's the yeah, important exactly. thing yeah 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 and right. no i i play the piano only if there are well yeah because i have perfect pitch so most harmonies i can kind of hear mm. in my head but if it gets very very hard or if there are like incredible transpositions sometimes <laughs> and, yeah. and my brain is too tired then i just sit down at the piano and you know try to ah oh so this is the chord mm. uh, but unfortunately I'm, I'm not in shape for playing scores um i haven't practiced the piano in almost 20 years so unfortunately it would be great to be able to play Sal- salome you know just like yeah. that <laughs> but i can't dear listener breaking news in the past i've offered you the chance to have conducting lessons from myself via patreon Sadly, all of those places have now been taken, and until one of my six pupils unsubscribes, this offer no longer exists. You can, however, still benefit in every other way from subscribing to my Patreon page. I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from my trips guest conducting, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. There's over 25 hours of interviews, including my latest one with the principal double bass of the Concertgebouw Orchestra and media personality Dominic Seldis. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Ava Olikainen. Ava, it's 10 questions time, and as ever, I always start with, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, is this terrible? I love silence. (laughs) It's not terrible at all. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what do I hate? I really hate when everyone is talking at the same time and I can't hear anyone very well. This goes at home and at work and mm. out there in the world. <laughs> yeah, when you're in a, a... There are certain rooms, aren't there, where the acoustic just means that all you can hear is is 
Noise. Noise. Yeah, you can't. Yes. He, he struggles to pick out anybody's conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, I've been to some social functions where you know we've all had dinner in a room like that, and you just think it's pointless me being here. I can't hear anybody's conversation yeah. at all. No, I agree. It's a uh, it's a horrible noise. Number three. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would go for a long walk somewhere mm. in the nature. I would uh, rest, I would eat well, and I would read a book, and then I would cuddle with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a wonderful answer. How old are your children? They are seven and nine. So they're still, they're still at an age that they don't mind being cuddled, I suppose. No, 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 they love. Yeah. They're <laughs> in a fantastic age. They still yeah. love, yeah, very much. <laughs> Good. Number four is... Who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? I mean, Carlos Kleiber. Yeah. <laughs> There's really no comparison, I think. Well, uh, it wouldn't surprise you to know that he has come up more than anybody else's name. Yeah. I remember early on, some, when I started this podcast, during the, the, the darkest days of, of the coronavirus pandemic, Somebody tweeted me and said, is everybody going to say Carlos Kleiber? To which my answer yeah. was, well, if they are, let's there's a, well, let's, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's see. And then if they are, then maybe there's a reason why, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know I, I gave him as my answer. And many others have given him as my answer. So, yeah, yeah, perfectly acceptable. Question five is, has often been considered to be a lot more difficult. And Daniel Harding said it was cruel. Who would be your favourite current conductors or conductor? Oh, oh, but this is now then what repertoire and... Um... Brilliant. Well, go for repertoire specific because I think m many conductors have done that and that's oh, perfectly... God, no, 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 no. I can't. <laughs> that is diplomatically not... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yes, but, but there are so many wonderful colleagues... I, so many wonderful. Um, well, the most incredible concerts that I've heard, well, because I, I have actually experienced Carlos Kleiber alive. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lucky you. Was, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. No, but um, someone who is still alive, uh, Christian Thielemann, mm. uh, together with Staatskapelle Dresden. I think those concerts have been the most incredible uh, pieces of art that I have ever witnessed. Yeah, and what what do you remember? What I'm sure you do remember what they were playing and what he was conducting. Oh, I've I've heard a lot of concerts with them because I right. worked quite a bit in the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah, every concert with him and opera. I would well, say. I, I I know reading reports just from this week that he did a Bruckner's Eighth Symphony with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which seems to have lit a fire or set a bomb off over there in Chicago that there were people are clamoring oh, to imagine. sign him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, brilliant choice. Number six is what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, yeah, well, Turandot without rehearsal. Oh, <laughs> very good answer. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise probably the already mentioned Elliot Carter's opera, What Next? Probably one of the absolutely hardest things, I think, like mathematically, just yeah. to figure out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also with, with something like Elliot Carter, it's not only the maths of 
uh, what time signatures you're conducting one after another after another your ears have got to be at 110% because of the you're trying to work out the pitches that people are playing against each other or in their for their lines trying to spot yeah. wrong notes some of the rhythms are particularly difficult to work you know and so your your antennae are just on a red alert all of the time and meanwhile you're doing a conducting exam you know so yeah, yeah that's <laughs> tough but yeah doing an opera like Turin Dot on no rehearsal yeah good luck how did it go yeah. <laughs> well um we survived and um, <laughs> they have invited me back so oh, well <laughs> it went very well there we go yeah tick 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 yeah brilliant <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Um, I believe it's called a spike mat in English. Is it? A spike mat? Did what's, you know? No. What's uh, that? Oh, it's upstairs now. I can't show okay. you. It's 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 a mat with a lot of spikes, and then you lie on it, and uh, oh, I know. Yes, 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 yes. I know. In English, yeah, I, it probably could be called a spike mat. But now you've explained what it is. Yes, I, well, I think we have one downstairs. Yeah, yeah, I th I'm sure we <laughs> yeah. have one. Yeah, and that's just I'm lying on it every morning and evening. Yeah, um, to, and it's to, great for the back. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When you said spike mat, I immediately thought, do you play the cello? You know, the sort of <laughs> thing that you, you put underneath your cello spike. But yeah. when you explain what it is, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Especially if you're on, you know, uh, you know, let's say you go from Iceland to somewhere else to somewhere else before you come back home to Denmark, you three weeks away and a lot of traveling and bag carrying and whatever else. Yeah, you need something like that. Yeah, I, I often have a tennis ball in my in my carry-on bag so that you know i can put the tennis ball against the wall and then just yeah. rub it rub my back up and down yeah. but yeah those spike mats are really good what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor now uh one thing that i've been thinking a lot about lately is the traveling and and the flying mm. and mm. this is something that i'm dreading when the question will come from my kids uh mummy you're flying quite a lot mm. aren't you and yeah. uh, that's not very good for the planet is it you know i'm I, this is something that is worrying me a lot and and i think generally we should think about this as artists how do we plan our routes yeah. uh, and um i mean this would be the re one really good reason for me to actually start working with the general management again because i would really need help in kind of planning the routes, maybe flying somewhere, but then planning three or four weeks around where you can travel by train and then flying back home or something like that. But we should definitely reduce our flying, I think, all of us. And um, I think artists really should be front runners in this discussion because we come from very different backgrounds in the society. We have uh, we are often not so politically involved, I think, uh, which is a good thing when we are talking about climate change, I believe. And um, obviously, a lot of us have a lot of visibility in, mm. in the different medias. So I think we should use our position in, in trying to start the discussion regarding mm. flying and our future on this planet. I think you're right, wherever possible. I mean, there are orchestras already, I read, articles online saying that there are some orchestras who are dedicated to traveling especially in in mainland europe 
or even from the UK to mainland Europe, um, you know, using the Eurostar and going yeah. everywhere by train. I have to point out that there are some unavoidable things. I mean, um, there maybe there are boats to Iceland, but would you want to spend any time on those boats exactly. to get me? You know, if you're the conductor of the Iceland Symphony Orchestra, you pretty much have to fly there. But it doesn't or mean that if you're I, doing, I should have to move there and stay kind of there for yes. for the time being, and then what after that? I mean, exactly. I don't yeah, have yeah, any yeah. career, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this, yeah. this is very very tricky. Yeah. But this but, is why I I really think that we should talk about it more and. Yeah. Um, Think but, about it. but it doesn't mean it, if you go from you know a week in Reykjavik and then you're working in the, in the in the America for two and a half weeks that you can't do the American bit whilst you're there on on train or on you know whatever however else you want to do it in a lo yeah. low lower carbon footprint. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think I think you know I've done some trips recently where I've come back from mainland Europe on the train rather than flying. Um, That's great. Yeah, and as it I happened, I love traveling by train. Yeah, it worked very well. Um, yeah. But then there are other times when your diary just doesn't commit to it. And, you know, you have to have that moral discussion. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Very valid answer. And travel has not come up for a while um, as an answer. So that's that's great. Number nine. Often get very surprising answers to this question. Let's see whether yours is surprising or not. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, too many. <laughs> too many. I'm, I'm just a very curious mind. Yeah. Um, I well, I would love to attempt being an artist, like visual artist, yeah. but then also architect, um, historian. Um, yeah, um, those would probably be yeah on the very top of my list. Yeah, I have a very very um, soft spot for baking. And especially ah. when I was younger and had a little bit more time, I, I was really fascinated by that. And uh, at a certain point, I wanted to open a cafe in Helsinki. It never happened, of course. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, a beautiful place with, with the city's best croissant and yeah. the best tea in the town. And, you know, this was my plan. Well, it didn't happen. It didn't but, you happen, know, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, architect is, is an answer I gave in episode 50 when uh, I was interviewed for my own podcast. Um, and I think there's an awful lot of similarities between architecture or being an architect and being a conductor. Um, but, you know, there is that visual sense. Uh, as for being a baker, no, I've never been interested in that. <laughs> but I, I would have been a very, very valued customer and come well. If you made me made good croissants and coffee, I'd have come. Yeah. Um, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> Question 10, and as the rain teams down on the Velux window above me, dear listener, which is that noise you can hear, we get to my final and favourite question. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, I, I think I would go with um, Icelandic lamb. Ooh. I eat a lot of vegetarian food otherwise, but, but Icelandic lamb is so beautiful. And Icelandic tap water. It's the best thing in the world. I, I always drink two liters when I come to Iceland. Um, it's so pure and wonderful. The glacial clean water is one of yes. the best drinks on the planet. I drink a lot of water a day. I'm a two liter to three liter water a day person. Uh, love it. What a great choice. I haven't had that before. That's And Icelandic lamb, I didn't know that they specialised in it, but I love lamb, uh, so I'm assuming it, it's probably very well grass-fed, looked after, and incredibly tasty. Am I right? 
Yes, and they have had good lives. I think they yeah. have lived a good life out there. Yeah. Well, a good life and a good interview it's been. It's been wonderful meeting you, Ava, and I hope maybe we can have something stronger than a glass of Icelandic water, but I'd love to try Icelandic water one day anyway, but we can meet over a glass of something and have, carry on chatting one day in the future. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Welsh conductor who shot to fame when he won the Leeds Conducting Competition in 1986. He has had a long and distinguished career, holding title positions in Belgium, Norway, France, the US and the UK. He has also had to go through the arduous task of learning to conduct again after suffering a stroke in 2021. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>